Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 17th, 2011, and my guest is Ryan Avent, the economics correspondent for The Economist and author of The Gated City. Ryan, welcome to Econ Talk. Hi, Russ. Thanks for having me. Our topic for today are the ideas in your recent book, The Gated City. Uh, it's a Kindle single, by the way. It is brief by book standards, but it is full of interesting economics and many, many important observations about how cities actually function. Um, your main argument in the book is that urban policy of various kinds has handicapped growth in America. It's a very interesting and provocative argument. So I want to begin by talking about what's special about cities, a topic you deal with in the book. Why are cities important? Why are, why are they places of productivity? Right. Um, well, cities exist um, basically because um, there are limits to um, – how easy it is to to ship goods and how easy it is to move people uh and so um despite all the improvements we've seen in transportation and communications technology distance isn't dead it's still important for different kinds of activities to group themselves together uh and so during the uh industrial revolution when it was very expensive to to move goods around it became really important for big factories to locate near to each other we had these huge industrial cities uh, now it's cheaper to move goods, but it's still expensive to, to move people, uh, and people still need to uh, to interact and to uh, to do all sorts of things to make the economy run. And so, cities have become very important places for interactions uh, between people, uh, and a lot of those interactions underlie uh, some some of the key sectors in uh, in the economy today. And so, um, you know, what we see is that uh, cities create. Uh, essentially an opportunity for us to enjoy more scale in our markets. Um, and, uh, you know, when we look at, at the economic logic for why that's important, it uh, it allows um, for greater levels of specialization uh, and trade. Uh, in a lot of uh, places, that wouldn't be possible if uh, human if people weren't grouped closely together. Um, and so if, you know, I use the example in my book, essentially, of, of a Vietnamese restaurant. And in a, in a small city, um, there... Uh, you might have one. <laughs> you might have one, exactly. Might have zero. Um, the, you're not going to have uh, enough people with the diversity of taste to support uh, high levels of specialization. In a large city, you will, and with that greater specialization become, uh, you know, comes along opportunities for innovation uh, and you know, greater satisfaction of preferences and things like that. Power um, of competition you talk about. That exactly. Force exactly. the existing restaurants to do a good job, then a better job, ideally over time. Right, and they, uh, you know, they they attract um, suppliers uh, that sort of uh, and and customers all along the sort of uh, vertical chain there that 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 makes for a better productive process. Uh, and it, and, you know, it's not that it erodes co- competitive intensity. I think it, it's it's um, um, you know, but but that it sort of it supports competition and uh, uh, but then also allows. Or you know you, you have a situation where if you lose your job in a large city with a lot of different producers, you're better able to find another good job, and that you know that obviously becomes very important in situations like today when unemployment is high. Um, 
And, so you, don't, I guess and you don't have to move, I, you know, which is costly. Yeah, and, I, and so I, many I think that's become increasingly important in recent decades. You know, we have the rise of the two-earner household. And so, you know, previously, if you just had, you know, the head of household working um, and the head of household lost his job, it was less of an issue to move. Now, if you have uh, both uh, both members of a couple working, uh, one of them loses their job, it's very problematic to try to locate and find a better opportunity for both people. And so I think that's one of the things that's sort of been supporting uh, large cities. Um, but, you know, if you look at, at the what the data says, there's there's been kind of a lot of work on this over the past um, two decades, and it suggests that, um, especially in, in recent decades, uh, density uh, has become quite important for improving productivity. Um, and, you know, I think there's, a, there's an intuition there that, uh, uh, that has a lot to do with uh, the increasing importance of personal interaction uh, in the economy, especially among high-skill level jobs. Um, and I, you know, I also think that shows up when you look at, at some of the data on, on the return to work. And you know, very talented individuals have, have seen their uh, incomes soar lately. And I think that's directly connected to the importance of face-to-face interaction and, uh, and how that sort of takes place in big cities. As you point out, there's a lot of, you might call them spillover effects or team production or complementarity, synergy. Or These are all words that we use to describe this, that when a particular industry has a lot of participants in one geographical location, the whole industry gets better. It's not just that there's more competition. Oh, that's part of it. But there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas between the participants, new spinoffs get started. There's so many aspects to that creative process uh, that, say, take place in Silicon Valley, which is one of the examples you use, uh, Boston, and mm-hmm. other places like that, or in New York, the finance sector. Uh, so many, some of them not so healthy, but uh, a lot of innovations taking place that w- is harder to take place in geographically disparate locations. It's a little bit of a surprising claim. I think it's true, by the way. But it's a little bit surprising because at the same time, so much more communication is taking place not face-to-face. Right. So much stuff's being outsourced. So many back office jobs are being put in, in distant locations, which are inexpensive, uh, rather than putting everybody in the city. Of course, part of that is a result, not, not an underlying cause. That's a response to the expense that expense of cities, which we're going to talk about soon. But it is interesting that both these effects really are taking place at the same time. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's easier than ever to see, you know, the research that other people are doing uh, to communicate with people in other cities around the world and, you know, just talk to them about what they're doing. And so it's surprising in a way that these, you know, connections, these uh, uh, concentrations continue to be so important and actually seem to be getting more important. And, I, you know, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we are um, exploring a lot of new technologies and a lot of new Business models. The technologies themselves are are having this effect, and that's because I think that when you there's this process of figuring out how to use new technologies, um, this this sort of conversation between firms between workers becomes more important. And there's a lot of kind of background conversation, a lot of tacit knowledge, is what economists call it, um, that you really sort of miss out on when you're not there. Um, and that's you know you get some of that from people. Uh, starting new businesses or jumping from firm to firm, and that happens a lot more uh, within a city uh, than it does you know, at long distances. You know, get a lot of the sort of serendipitous uh, meetings between people, and you know, in bars and restaurants, uh, kind of accidental 
you know, eureka moments that that are, that are are hard to have when you are just communicating by email. Much easier to have in person, and you know, I think there's an element of sort of mystery to it that we haven't exactly yeah, wrapped our head absolutely. around. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, it does seem to show up that uh, you know the research says that even across uh, floors within a building, you know, um, there you lose something uh, in terms of this the, the importance of interaction that that um, that you don't get um, uh, from you know the building across the street, and so or across clear, the country, exactly. Um, and so, so clearly, proximity is important. Yeah, I'm a big believer, obviously, uh, in the power of conversation. And some conversations can take place over over the telephone, as this one is. But some are better face to face, and sometimes it's more than one person makes is what makes the difference. More than two people uh, is important for making the difference. Now, part of what we're talking about right now is what we might call productivity differences in in when you concentrate people of similar interests and in intellectual ideas or business ideas. There's also a big factor in amenities. So there's a certain people of a certain income level, a certain prefer- set of preferences mm-hmm. might want to consume similar amenities. So some of the concentration we're talking about is is just a result of the choices people make. Uh, they like to be in, I'll say, a lively urban environment, or vice versa. They'd rather be. You know, I, I often think of the difference between uh, Manhattan and Bozeman, Montana. There's a lot of intellectual activity going on in Bozeman, a lot of it concentrated there because people like the non-urban amenities that a place like Bozeman offers, whereas people are concentrating in Manhattan because they like the urban amenities. Right. And one of the, I think, key things that's easy to forget about and I'd like you to turn to now is density. You mentioned it briefly. Talk about why density is important. And, of course, in Bozeman, it's a, there's a certain lack of density that people like, but in most urban in urban settings, it's density is very powerful. Right. Um, well, I, I think that's right, and it you know it's right on the production side. It's also right on the uh, on the the consumer side. And uh, you know, economist Ed Glazer has made this point a number of times. Um, and it, it works in a couple different ways. I mean, uh, one of the ways that it works is in that when you have a lot of people, uh, then um, but they're in one large market. Then it's easier to satisfy sort of very, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of unique tastes. Uh, you know, there are enough people in Manhattan or in New York City um, that you can have a successful business catering to even to very incredibly niche uh, needs there. And, and you know, people like being in an area where uh, there are a lot of unique businesses catering to those. Uh, niche industries. You may not be someone who's always going to be interested in going to see a, a very interesting kind of uh, sort of uh, avant-garde theater, uh, but you like being in a city that has that option available, and maybe you want to go once every few years. Um, and then another aspect of it, I think, is this, the scale effect that you know when you're in a market like New York City that's so large, um, you have enough people there to support things that require very, you know, huge uh, audiences to, to really work. And that's, you know, that's like big sporting uh, events, that's, that's big museums, um, things that really require a lot of, of sort of turnover to work. And so in a, in a market like New York City, there's a lot of things going on that you just can't uh, replicate elsewhere. Um, and a lot of those things are experiential um, goods that it's, it's not, the, you know, it's not the kind of thing you can get in Houston unless you're willing to pay for an airline ticket to fly to uh, to New York. So I think you know we've we've definitely seen a rise in these kinds of experiential amenity values, and that 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 certainly is one of the things that's, that's driving the popularity of of places like uh, uh, New York and other dense cities. 
as you point out in the book, when we think of density and we think of a place like Manhattan or Tokyo uh, where the density is very intense in a, in a very concentrated area, we often forget about the importance of density in suburban areas as well. So in the rings around these urban cores, um, suburbs also have varying amounts of density with consequences about productivity and amenities as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know when you say the word density, people automatically think of Midtown Manhattan and imagine that it means um, you know very tall skyscrapers. I actually, I, I say in the book, I live in one of the denser places in the country, and that's Arlington County in Northern Virginia, just outside Washington. Uh, but it looks very, very different from Manhattan. Um, it, there aren't a lot of, of very tall skyscrapers. Um, parts of the county look, you know, uh, have single-family homes and are very suburban. And, and indeed, you know, Fairfax County right next door is almost entirely suburban, and yet it's still a fairly dense place. So, you know, you can, you know, you're going to see a range of densities there, and and it, it matters if you're going up in density, even at lower levels of density. And and so you see a place like, um, like Silicon Valley, which is not looks nothing like uh, Manhattan. Um, a lot of suburban office campuses and suburban development. But actually, as it turns out, uh, in terms of jobs per square mile, it is, it is really quite dense. And uh, and that matters in terms of uh, the effectiveness of the town in the area, in terms of the size of the labor market. Um, and so it's, you know, it's not just a story about trying to make every place like Manhattan. It's about, you know, the, the extent to which uh, large markets, whatever they end up looking like, uh, are important for productivity. Now, your argument is, is that we have distorted the amount of density that we consume, uh, the amount of density that there is, and we have uh, under-consumed density, that, that a denser urban and suburban America would be much more productive, and we have, we have biased uh, through some public policies our choices with some surprising consequences. We'll turn to those in a minute. But first, talk, let's talk about the – we've talked about the positive side of density so far, which is specialization, the concentration of amenities because of economies of scale. All this is right out of uh, Adam Smith, the divisional labor is limited by the extent of the market. Uh, it's an old idea, but you're applying it to a very new new um, set of policies. Let's talk about the downside of density because I think when most people think of density, they have very negative ideas. In fact, the very first thing I think of, I think most people think of is density. That means overcrowding. Right. So there's a lot right. of negative amenities in cities as well. Um, what are they? Um, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, in the old days, density meant dying early. There was a uh, disease was quite common. And we, yeah. we've mostly overcome Great that point. problem, but there are still a lot of others. And, uh, you know, Congestion is, is one of the first ones people think about. It's one of the big complaints people have when you talk about new development is that it's going to mean more traffic. It's going to be more competition for parking uh, and things like that. Um, you know, there's still uh, some pollution costs associated to uh, to, uh, to density. You, you don't have air pollution problems in, uh, in, in Bozeman, Montana, like you do in Los Angeles. Um, and but at the same time... Getting getting goods to Manhattan is incredibly cheap relative to Bozeman on certain dimensions, and and I think people automatically assume that Bozeman's greener than Manhattan, and in many ways it's not. No, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, they because you have so many more people packed together in New York, there are a lot of efficiencies there, and in fact, you know, New Yorkers uh, emit far less carbon than than people who live in in, uh, in less denser environments. Um, so you know there are. That's because they're all next to each other and they keep themselves warm. No, that's not <laughs> it. But, but there, it's something like that, actually. It's something like that. <laughs> um, 
so you know, and, and in terms of congestion, it goes beyond just sitting in traffic. I mean, there's there's competition for other public services. Um, you know, that you have you run into a lot more uh, issues with strategies of the commons. I mean, you have public spaces that are that may tend to be overused. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people, uh, simply enjoy, uh, even people who live in, in big dense cities like to, to be able to, uh, to get away and to see green and, and, and that's obviously a concern as well. So it's, I mean, it's not all, uh, it's not all good things. And if it were all good things, yeah. you know, we wouldn't expect to see the rules that we see, uh, limiting density. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, many of the public, uh, the tragedy of the commons problems come from underpricing. Absolutely. Um, and I guess it, the fact that you know the roads are typically un, unpriced in America, the parks are unpriced. Uh, there are many. There's some. There's nothing attractive about that, and has, but it has serious uh, congestion costs. And of course, we have to. I think also concede that there are people who like um, the Manhattan sidewalk, even though it's a little bit overcrowded, especially around holiday time. A lot of people thrive off of that and find it stimulating to be in that. Those swarms of people, they find it exhilarating. It's you know, it's a diff- just a different. Experience yeah, obviously yeah. than most other places. So what's wrong? That's you know. So if we if we step back and we look at American cities, it's tempting to say the following: Yeah, some things are underpriced, like 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 the roads, perhaps, or public parks. In most places, that that underpricing doesn't matter on the public park side. It's not like they're they're abused. Um, but on the roads, we'd say that's a that's a problem. But for the most part, what's wrong with my con- with a conclusion that says? Well, okay, you know, cities are crowded, but you know that what happens is, is as they get crowded and as it gets harder and harder to get around them, and then so some people choose not to live in those cities or in the densest part of them. They choose the suburbs, and people sort themselves out. The people who want a big yard move out to the suburbs. The people who want to live near closer to the really good Vietnamese restaurants and all the other incredible things that a big city offers, they live closer to those by living in the urban core. And we have lots of choices in America, and that's all good. Everything's working out fine. There's these natural uh, signals, sometimes literally prices, uh, sometimes implicit prices of congestion, and that's what determines where people want to live. They look at their preferences and the alternatives, and they choose accordingly. So everything's fine, but you say no. Why? I say no, and I, you know, I think that um, what we uh, essentially see is that the prices are are telling us something important, but it's not that we've we've sort of filtered people into the places where they're you know where uh, we're, we're fitting them to the city that that, that matches their their taste. Um, I think actually what we uh, what I what we're seeing, and there's a there's been an increasing volume of research done on this, is that uh, in fact in, in in all cities, but especially in dense cities. Um, Existing homeowners uh, strongly favor efforts to to limit new uh, construction, not just on their properties, but on adjacent properties. Um, and this is what we would call uh, the NIMBY effect, and not in my backyard. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that they go about um, limiting new development, and, and some of them are, are through zoning regulations. Some of those zoning regulations have been there for a while. Um, uh, they also uh, uh, are there are increasing efforts to designate areas as historic and to make new development difficult and and, and sometimes that's appropriate um, but in a lot of times it's just a means to to control what other people can do with their land uh, and then there's also just a lot of explicit pressure um, you, you know you see this you see a developer express interest in building new housing on a piece of uh, of land and and uh, all of a sudden you have a lot of neighbors calling their uh, their councilmen and, and complaining and asking them to uh, you know, do whatever is necessary to, to tweak the zoning rules to prevent that from occurring. And 
when you aggregate all these uh, these NIMBY efforts to 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 limit development, what you get is uh, a market where uh, supply is unable to adjust. So if you if you have a situation where a lot of Americans are are increasing, are you know inju- more interested in living in these dense cities, uh, and normally we would expect that to to bid up the price to live in the cities and then supply in the short would, run, but in the longer run, we'd expect. We'd expect supply to adjust. We expect builders to come in and see the rising demand, build new housing, and and, and meet that demand. Um, but there's a there's a, a problem in, in that last step there, and that's that um, um, homeowners are, are are effectively able to limit the way the extent to which supply can adjust by imposing all these limits on developers. Now, there's no denying the fact that it's hard to develop land in America, in especially in urban areas, right? We all. There, there's lots of casual and anecdotal and 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 serious evidence that there are costs that are imposed on development of all kinds. Uh, historic, you mentioned one example. Environmental regulations would be another. Right. Um, I just don't like it. Would be the third, uh, which would, is the one you, you. I think it's important to focus on because that kind has no positive justification. Um, it, it's basically uh, th- so. There's many. There's many of these obvious. That's obviously true. Right. But what I found impressive about your book, which made me think a lot more about it than I had before, was the implications that that has for um, the actual numbers of house in terms of housing stock and um, and housing prices and what's happened to population in places that I would have assumed were growing. Right. Uh, so talk about that. Well, there. I mean, there has been a sense, I think, um, and, and it's a correct sense that cities that had been struggling uh, in the 60s and 70s have really enjoyed a turnaround, and they have. Places like uh, like New York, Boston, Washington, um, the Bay Area, uh, these are places that have been in- incredibly economically successful over the last 10 years, and I think a lot of that is due to um, the way that new technology has supported the uh, the high levels of human capital that they, that they have um, and made those places more productive. Um, what's striking is that this economic success, this growth in, in, in wages and in employment and to some extent, has not translated into a lot of population growth. Um, and in fact, quite the opposite. Um, there, I mean, there has been uh, some population growth there, but most of that is due to natural increase or immigration. And when you look at just at where Americans are moving uh, and focus on net domestic migration, um, we basically see a giant uh, sustained move from these high productivity, high wage places to um, the Sun Belt. And uh, when you sort of pull apart the uh, the reasons for why they're moving, it seems to be driven by these dramatic differences in housing costs. Um, and that's primarily associated with the, the difficulty in building in the, this, this, these coastal cities, the zone zone, as, as Paul Krugman calls it. Versus difficulty in building in in flatland. Um, and, you so know, places we, like Phoenix, Charlotte, Raleigh, where you grew up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Houston. Um, these are places where, if people try to move there, which they have, mm-hmm. they find that they can still buy a large piece of land and build a nice house on it. Uh, if they decide they want to move to one of these coastal cities, they struggle to do so because. As more people try to do that, the um, the price goes up disproportionately to the increase in the desirability. I think that would be the right way to to yeah. summarize it. Because I mean, the technical way to phrase it would be: 
the elasticity of supply is is much smaller in these coastal cities relative to the Sun Belt, so that when there's an increase in demand, price goes up a lot mm-hmm. relative to a place where the supply is relatively flat or elastic, and you'd get a just you'd get a big quantity increase and a very small price increase. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, so the I mean the the effect is over. Uh, course of the past 10 to 20 years has really been that population has flowed to the places that have a uh, very elastic um, housing supply and uh, and not to the places um, that have really been seeing strong economic growth, strong uh, wage growth. And what's, again, to come back to the surprising part of this is that if you told me that it's more expensive to live in San Francisco than Phoenix, I would have said, well, of course it is. It's a lot more pleasant to live in San Francisco. It's not surprising it's more expensive. But what you're really talking about and that and that's what markets do. They they take the things that are precious that aren't easy to duplicate, like the Bay Area's weather or the vistas or the amenities of of a city or the productivity of being around a lot of people like uh, like you, uh, like one who's working in these industries we've been discussing. Well, sure, that's what happens. They get expensive to live there, and that that rations the 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 number of people who live there, which it has to because there's there's a limited amount of space there, right. and that, that's sort of the standard economics argument. But you point out it's not really working that way, right? It's, I mean, it's not. I mean, we would expect, given the differences in amenities, that um, there's going to be a premium to live uh, in San Francisco relative to, to Phoenix. But um, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a huge gap. In fact, you'd probably expect to see more building in a high demand area like San Francisco than you would in Phoenix. Um, and that's just not what you see. And there's, it's just remarkable the difference in the uh, growth in the housing stock over the last ten to twenty years. Yeah, give us some of those numbers. If I remember correctly, in the handful of coastal cities where we're talking about, the growth rate is is less than – I forget where the time period was. You have a chart where it's less than – it's in the 5-ish percent range compared to other cities where it's 30 and 40 percent. Yeah. Um, over uh, – from so from 2001 to 2009, uh, the housing stock in uh, in Boston, New York, and, and uh, the Silicon Valley area, each of those, it, it grew by a little over 5 percent. Um and then you look at a city like uh, like Las Vegas, and the housing stock grew by almost forty percent. Um, and in places like Atlanta, uh, Phoenix, and Charlotte, it grew by about twenty five percent. So it's just a, a huge difference in growth in the housing stock, which really is you know has nothing to do with with uh, with demand, um, but it is entirely to do with just the ease of building in those places. And and that that turns into uh, uh, a very large difference in, difference in the cost of housing. It's really remarkable. The median home, owner-occupied home in, in Houston in 2009 was um, just about $130,000 in value. Uh, and in San Jose, it was over 600000 And that just dwarfs the difference in wages. Um, and it's, it, it, it's not associated with the difference in construction costs. There is a difference in construction costs, but it's, it's very small uh, relative to the sort of the premium that... Uh, is due to the different the difficulty in building in, in, in those areas in the coast. And, and again, it's important to emphasize that we would expect that the real cost of living would be higher maybe in San Jose than it is in Houston. Yeah, absolutely. It's the amount that's it's different by. We wouldn't expect wages to totally compensate for the higher costs. It's just how little they compensate right. given given the uh, the differences. Now, San, Las Vegas had a 40% increase in housing in its housing stock over that eight-year period, and much of that was a mistake, um, <laughs> ex-post. Ex-ante, it might have seemed like a good idea, uh, but as a re- it was a result of um, a whole bunch of factors, which we're going to leave alone for a minute. 
maybe for the rest of, the, of this podcast. <laughs> but clearly we overbuilt in some cities. Those, those houses are not occupied. To me, what's striking, and I, this is a challenge to your claim, uh, I, I think I have an explanation, but I'll let you go first. Okay. Um, th- there seems to be a puzzle here. Your, your claim is that how could it be that there's been so uh, little growth in the Bay Area's housing stock, for example, and such a big increase in in housing prices. And your answer is, well, the supply is not very responsive, and it's not very responsive because the regulations and, and zoning and other restrictions that are put on land use by the policy space and all the regu- various legislation and regulation. But that would be true if you saw – you should see quantity, at least quantity increases. Now, because you're claiming that to put this on a simple supply-demand framework, if you're claiming that there's a big de- uh, increasing demand to live in these productive cities, but higher prices are what's choking off – dramatically higher prices are choking off that demand too effectively, too much because of the supply uh, – shape of the supply curve, the ability of the supply to respond, well, how can these places be losing population? How How could it be – that some of the cities you talk about and some of the urban areas you talk about are actually losing population at the time that right. prices are skyrocketing. I have an idea, but what do you, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, one thing that's important to point out is that they're, I mean, they're losing uh, existing residents. Um, uh, on a net basis, you know, much more, many more current residents are moving out than are moving in. Um, when you take into account uh, immigration, uh, for the most part, their price population has been uh, flat to slightly increasing. Um, that stands in stark contrast to you know, Phoenix and and places like that, which have just seen enormous total population growth as well as domestic population uh, growth. So, I mean, that's that's one thing that's occurring. But I also think there's, I mean, there's, um, uh, you know, you see a couple different trends that also sort of help to explain this. And one is that um, you're probably filtering for people with greater levels of wealth, and that that could be affecting the um, the size of the of the units that they're or the quality of the units that they're buying, and then, right. So within a market, it's not just that every house is going up the same amount. You're shifting toward the more expensive houses. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, there could be also some sort of. Uh, I mean, some speculative purchase of homes w- with the expectation that they'll be able to develop them later on. But I don't, what's your theory? I well, I think I think we uh, we distorted through public policy. Uh, Financing costs a great deal over the last two decades. Um, we made it a lot easier to borrow money, both in how we subsidized the flow of money into liquidity into the housing market via liberating Fannie and Freddie from its previ- from their previous restrictions. So we made it easier for mortgage originators to lend money to people because they knew they could uh, sell those loans to Fannie and Freddie. And of course, then it got worse than that. We also made it it got easier to sell it to almost anybody because of Mortgage-backed securities, but we just early on in the '90s we decided we and decided those are wrong words. Public mm-hmm. policy shifted toward encouraging home ownership in a in a very dramatic way, and the way that it happened was through the financing aspect. And then the Federal Reserve piled on in the early part of the 2000s by lowering Alan Greenspan pushed interest rates very low. So even though there weren't weren't necessarily more people trying to live in San Francisco. This is a variant of your argument, really, sort of the underlying cause. Even though there weren't more people necessarily trying to live in San Francisco, the ones who were there were bidding for higher and more expensive houses because 
it was cheaper and and to consume a bigger house through through interest rate yeah. changes and policies. Well, that's certain. I mean, we've certainly been subsidizing debt, and that sort of that encourages people to to borrow as much as they can and buy as big a house as they can. Um, so, other than causing the financial crisis, I mean, what's the big deal? Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. that's a negative. Let's again, we're, I'm gonna, we're gonna put that to the side because we want to focus on what I think is is what I love about your your argument is it's a it's a hidden uh, consequence. It's it's a hidden, unseen effect of these kind of policies. Okay, so it's expensive to live in San Francisco. It's expensive to live in Boston. It's expensive to live in Manhattan. What's the big deal? So people have to live somewhere else. We're ignoring the collapse of the housing market the, the, right. and, and the incredible unemployment effects it's had, tragic effects it's had on construction workers and, and uh, people who do everything related to housing construction. We lured all these uh, people into this field that now is dead for about 10 years, tragically. Uh, put that to the side. That's turns out that's that's easy to see. We, you can go to Las Vegas and see unemployed, lots of unemployed people. Right. But it's it, what I like about your argument is that the underlying consequences are harder to see and maybe even just as important. What are they? Well, I think the main one that I focus on is that we, um, you know, we in sort of making it difficult to satisfy demand in these cities, we're we're, we're producing this big shift, and it, it, I think it's happening mostly. Uh, among middle skill workers um, who are upping sticks and, and, and moving to cities that, that seem to have better opportunities for them. I, you know, most specifically, they can afford to put their house and put their family in a home uh, that that's large and comfortable and probably newer than, than where they that they could in the Bay Area. But the impact of that is that they're taking their family to a different labor market and um, productivity levels are lower. That's you know that's one of the points that I make. But it's also the, the sort of Distribution of jobs that we see in uh, in these uh, fast-growing cities is different from what we see in places like Silicon Valley and, and Boston. It's um, it, it's more oriented toward uh, non-tradable sectors. That's that's things like healthcare and education rather than high technology. Uh, and so there's a there's an impact there, and in, in I think our productive potential and our innovative potential. Uh, and also the ability of a lot of these middle-skilled households to find work in these uh, these new industries. And I think it also has an impact on our, our ability to trade. Uh, we're just, when we talk about the industries that we see in these coastal cities, they tend to be a lot of exporting industries, uh, a lot of high-value-added industries. Um, and, you know, these, 100 years ago, these were the industries that really were attracting millions and millions of workers. And now it's curious that they're repelling them uh, and we're we're employing more and more people in, in low product productivity industries, and some of that is is going to be the natural evolution of of, of the economy. Um, you know, we're going to be as the population changes uh, and ages, we're going to be putting more employing more people in healthcare, uh, which tends to be a low productivity field. Um, but I think much more of it is occurring than needs to be the case, simply because people can't afford to live in places um, that are that have the potential to create more of these uh, high value tradable jobs. So that that's it. Really, is an, is the crux of this issue for me is uh, in trying to think about how important it is. Which, of course, is very hard to measure what you're talking about. You can you can get a measurement of it. You can look at you say you can compare jobs in Phoenix to jobs in in San Francisco. But of course, you never know whether you're controlling for the things that are right. different between Phoenix and San Francisco, other than housing costs. Whether maybe it's just people with different skill levels are moving to those cities, and the market, of course, can try to get around this problem. So if you have a, a high-tech idea 
and you want to, you imagine that eventually you're going to put a, a campaign, a corporate headquarters in, in Silicon Valley, and you realize that the cost of doing that is enormous because just to buy the land for your corporate headquarters is enormous. The salaries you've got to pay people to compensate for those high cost of living is enormous. And so you might end up locating somewhere else and other places then will become, will get these synergies. I mean, there's really, Sourdough bread might really be better in San Francisco because the air is 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 special. You know that's that's the the joke. It could be true, um, but but just don't computer, don't don't software startups work just as well in Austin, Texas, or other places uh, than, than Silicon Valley. So is it really that important? Why is it? Maybe it's just not that important. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is that important, and I mean, certainly, you know, I as I try to say in the book, like it's not that. There's nothing good coming out of places like Austin or, or Raleigh. I mean, they, they, there are some innovative companies there, some you know, some very good opportunities there. Um, but I think that we uh, underappreciate the extent to which um, these large agglomerations, you know, places like Silicon Valley, are very important for uh, figuring out how to use our, our best new ideas. And it, it comes out in a couple of different ways in the research. I mean, one thing that we see is that. Uh, um, spillovers from new uh, new innovations uh, are, are it's much uh, easier to take advantage of them when you're in a place with, that's, that's close to the, the location of the innovation. And I think that has a lot to do with this um, sort of tacit knowledge aspect of, that we talked about earlier. But it's also, I mean, there are. I think the, the labor market aspect of it is very important. And I, I talk about what happened in Silicon Valley uh, during the tech boom. There's been some interesting research on this lately. Uh, which is that essentially there was no surplus labor in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. Uh, firms. Pretty low unemployment rate. Pretty low, like 2 to 3%. Um, and, you know, that, that was great for the workers who, uh, who were there, who could afford to be there. They were, uh, salaries were skyrocketing. Um, but it was very difficult to attract new people to them. I mean, you wonder why, if, if salaries are going up so much, why wouldn't people just be flooding into this? This market and um, and taking advantage of that, and that's because housing prices were growing even faster um, than compensation, and so we had the same effect for people. Or even as um, the tech industry was booming, people were, were sort of leaving uh, Silicon Valley. And I think what's interesting about that is that it put a chill on entrepreneurship. Uh, that it made it very lucrative to stay at a place that was established. You know, to, to keep piling up stock options, and uh, it was much better to be a uh, to be a salary worker than to be self-employed. And so the rate of entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley at this point was much lower than the national average. Um, and so you have a place that's producing some of the best ideas. You know, it's, it's a center for innovation. Uh, and it's important that we start new businesses in the center of innovation. That's what the research tells us. Uh, and yet it was very unattractive to start a new business at that point because the labor market was so tight thanks to uh, the tightness of the housing market. And so, you know, I think that's it's, it's not that there are no good things happening elsewhere. It's that we're really uh, under-exploiting the potential of these, uh, these centers of, uh, of innovation. Um, and, and, you know, when you have a, a situation like that where the most innovative, you know, highest potential places aren't, you know, are so expensive... I think that acts as a dis- disincentive to to join the industry in the first place, to to specialize in uh, in, uh, in in the fields that are really booming in, in Silicon Valley. And we sort of see this discussion now. I think Felix Salmon, who's a blogger for Reuters, had an interesting post on this just this week, where he was talking to entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and they're struggling to find people with the skills to develop the cloud computing platforms. 
uh, that it's just not attractive to people because they can make so much more money uh, doing social media in uh, in the big businesses that are in sort of an ongoing boomlet in Silicon Valley. And uh, that would be less of an issue if you know it were if it were uh, easier to to have sort of a, a middle class lifestyle in Silicon Valley. It'd be more attractive to people to get these skills in the first place. It'd be more attractive for them to move to the place where demand is high. And so we're just we're underexploiting our innovative opportunities, and that that has an impact not just for you know the economies of Silicon Valley, but for the national growth rate. Yeah, and just just to emphasize the point you, you, when you said a minute ago that it's hard to start these businesses because it's so expensive to live there. We always would expect it to be expensive. It's just how expensive it is. It's much more expensive than it would be if we didn't artificially restrict the um, the supply response. Now, I, I've spent a reasonable amount of time in, in Silicon Valley and in other cities that are, of course, much denser. Arlington in in Virginia, where you live, is, mm-hmm. is one of those places that's denser than, than Palo Alto. Uh, for example, or, or Mountain View or Cupertino, these places right. that we're talking about in Silicon Valley, uh, neither is as dense as Manhattan. Uh, what might Palo Alto look like if it were easier to develop land there? I mean, it's not – there is some green space in Palo Alto, right? There, right. there are some parks and there's quite a few parks in that whole – in the Silicon Valley area. Uh, are you suggesting that, that those parks um, – should be turned into housing tracks? Are you suggesting <laughs> the laugh suggests you don't? You're not. But what 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 would be di- two questions? What policies could lead to something different? That is right. a slower growth rate in housing prices. And what would it look like that would be so different on the ground, other than that the existing housing stock might be a little less expensive? Well, I, it's a good question, um, and you know I try not to get. Uh, too much into um, design prescriptions in the book. I, I mean, I think that you know what emerges will depend a lot on what um, what solutions uh, local leaders decide to embrace. Uh, and um, but I, I do think one important point to make is that there's you know when you when we limit development in one place uh, within a city for which there's a high level of demand, it doesn't go away. It, it just shifts elsewhere. And so there's sort of a um, uh, in a way, it's a sort of a tragedy of the uh, of the commons. And the more nimbyism you get in one neighborhood, the more likely you are to see it elsewhere because uh, the pressure on their amenities, exactly, their infrastructure. Exactly. And so you 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 know you know Ed Glazer tells the story about how there was this development proposed uh, in in, Man- in Midtown Manhattan and uh, prompted all sorts of uh, outrage from the sort of people on the Upper West Side, Tom Wolf among them. Uh, who uh, claimed that Glazer wanted to uh, pave over Central Park and put up uh, put up buildings? Um, and Glazer, that would lower the co- that would lower the cost of an apartment or, that, or our condo in New York. Um, but I think Glazer made it an excellent point, which which was that when you allow um, the market to satisfy demand on uh, as as it sees fit on uh, you know in some places in the city, there's less pressure on other other places. You wouldn't need to develop Central Park if people could build as high as they wanted. Um, on other pieces of land, uh, and you know there'd be less pressure to develop historic neighborhoods in a city if places that weren't so historic and by rights should be redeveloped uh, were able to. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. You don't nec- it doesn't necessarily mean that every neighborhood's going to immediately be turned over and, and built into skyscrapers. It just means that um, you're going to the markets will 
be allowed to find places to uh, to sort of meet the demand for new housing. Um, you know, and as we look at the variety of density around the country, it's also clear that you can create new density without building skyscrapers. I think Arlington is, a, is one good example. Um, if you uh, if you ha- have an environment where there's um, very low density building, um, you can do quite a lot just by moving up to like row houses and, and, and you can sort of develop a small town feel uh, while at the same time increasing density. Uh, you can shrink lot size, for example. Exactly. Which is another factor. Um, Although in Palo Alto, a new a typical uh, uh, increasingly common phenomenon is a very large house on a very small lot, which the city doesn't particularly like. It's another way in which um, you, you can think of that being another example of density that, that developers find harder to implement because right. of the way there's there's minimum lot sizes there's minimum there's minimums for footage and you know setbacks and other things all which have good attractive reasons for those things because it gives the city a certain look but it also means that it's going to be very expensive for newcomers yeah i mean i i think that you know i i say my preference would be for everyone to develop a slightly more tolerant attitude toward what people do uh, on their own land um but it's you know I, it's important to be realistic about this and um so I think that there's a couple of strategies that, that seem especially promising. Um, you know, one is that if we can find a way to um, to turn some of the gain from more intense land use uh, into investment, and so uh, if you uh, had a sort of density charge, um, with, I hate to tax density in that way, but it's you know, in, in terms of being realistic about the, the distribution of costs, if you could charge developers for building more densely. Uh, you could channel some of that into investing in local amenities. Uh, could be parks, could be transit, uh, something to sort of try to uh, uh, convince local you know, stakeholders that um, density is going to be in their interest. So that normally we think of taxes as discouraging an activity, which it would. Uh, it would it would make it more expensive for developers to make urban areas more dense. But you're arguing that the, the political consequences of that would outweigh that, and we'd get more. Correct. I mean, that would be the hope, right? Yeah. And you know, certainly, if you had a situation where it was easy for developers to build now, you wouldn't want to tax density in that way because it would discourage it. But uh, when you have a situation where the, the political interests are aligned against any new building, um, you know, conceivably, you could uh, change the local political dynamics such that it was easier to build. Um, an alternative, I think, is, and this is, you know, people have different ideas about how to invest in transportation, and, and I, I appreciate that, but uh, transit-oriented development is something that's been fairly successful in the Washington area in turning uh, areas that, that are... What is transit-oriented development? Transit-oriented development is essentially when you build a, a transit line, it could be a metro line or a light rail line, and uh, sort of use that to change the equilibrium around the stations from one that's focused around driving and low-density development into one that's uh, focused on using transit and uh, changing the local streetscapes to encourage walking, and then as a result, you can support higher levels of density. So if you look at the Washington area, um, in in Arlington, where I live, the the Orange Line corridor is a series of stops that the county has... uh, um, used to facilitate greater levels of density. Uh, you see more multi-unit apartment buildings, more office buildings with some height. And uh, because it's around Metro, I think it's easier to, to convince people that traffic isn't going to become a problem, um, that there will be some nice benefit in terms of developing a walkable community. And, uh, and that sort of allowed uh, Arlington to grow uh, much faster than the typical close-in suburb. I, I, I note that Arlington over the past 10 years has grown almost 20%, which is about twice 
in terms of population, which is uh, twice the national growth rate in population. So it, 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 if there's buy-in, it's conceivable that it can work. Um, yeah, right now, Fairfax County is trying a much more aggressive approach and, and turning this Tyson's Corner, which is a sort of mass of highways and, and strip malls, giant uh, uh, parking lots, and trying to completely overhaul that. And I think a lot of people will be watching closely to see if it can work um, on that scale. Now, I mean, it's not something you want to rush into. Transit is expensive. Um, expensive. There's, you know, there's the temptation, I think, a lot of times for government to use things like eminent domain to sort of steamroll local interest. And, yeah. and that's something I'm, I'm not in favor of. I don't think the way to achieve density is to have government come in and take over the land and, and mandate it. Um, but I do think that if, you know, if we're going to be building infrastructure anyway because the population is growing and if we can do it in a, uh, you know, in a cost conscious way, then it, it may make sense to, to, to look at places where a, a different kind of infrastructure like transit can sort of change the equilibrium and, and allow for more density. Let me come back and ask you a, a, diff- a similar question that I asked you before. I'm going to try to come from a different place than I did before. A city I don't think you mentioned very much in the um, in the book is Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Now, Portland has really taken many of the ideas that we're talking about here that we're being critical of uh, on the growth side uh, – to heart, and they're in many ways the most extreme versions. Much, much harder. My understanding, I might be wrong, but my understanding is much, much harder to develop in Portland than in many other cities. If you talk about to people who live there, uh, they say, "Well, Portland's special, and we love our, we love the city, we love living here, and we love living here in the way that we live here." Uh, meaning this certain mix of of low density, urban-ish, but not too urban, not too dense, just right. And yes, it makes it harder for people who want to live in Portland to move here, uh, but uh, that's the way we like it. And what's wrong with that? I, I think it's wrong, actually. But but but, but what would be wrong with that? Well, and you, it's, and I, you I, could I, argue that, by the way, that according to your ideas, they're just punishing themselves. Isn't there this natural reaction that should come from the fact that since they're living this undense life, uh, they're missing out on all these complementarities and more Vietnamese restaurants and everything. So maybe it's just the right level. You're just exaggerating. <laughs> uh, I, it has been interesting. I mean, the, you would think that in, in writing this book that I would provoke a lot of anger from from people who love their suburbs and want to keep them that way. But there's also been quite a lot of pushback from people who are what you might call new urbanists that sort of um, treasure this kind of dense but not too dense uh, approach to city building uh, and sort of see tall buildings as an abomination. Um, no, I think that, you know, I think it, that's, that's a very natural response. And uh, people, when they purchase a home or decide to live in a place, um, you know, they're not just purchasing the, the place that they live, they're purchasing the neighborhood and, uh, you know, the amenities that come with it. Uh, you know, the problem, as I see it, is that the property rights don't actually match up in that way. And that, you you know, you purchase a home, and you feel like you're purchasing the neighborhood, but you don't actually have any ownership over that. And so because there's a sort of gray area, um, we're not in a position to, uh, you know, help neighborhoods strike bargains between um, what's in the interest of the city as a whole and what's in the interest of the neighborhood. And um, so you get a sense where um, where everyone is fighting density, uh, and even though they would be better off if the city as a whole allowed more density, uh, it's kind of a collective action problem. And so, you know, to some extent, I think that that's one uh, way of looking at what's, what's going on in Portland. Everyone would like the city maybe to be a little more dense. They just don't want it to be dense in their particular area. <laughs> yeah. um, and if we can find a way to help strike bargains 
within the city, then everyone can be made better off. Um, but I think, you know, it's also important to say that, you know, we, when we talk about negative externalities, we, we, we talk about the fact that when people make decisions um, and that are rational between, uh, you know, buyer and seller, they're having, they impose a negative cost on others. And I think, you know, when we talk about pollution, we think it's appropriate to, to take some steps, whether it's, you know, taxing the act that produced the pollution or, or regulating it in some cases. We think it's appropriate to try to mitigate that in some way. And I guess essentially that's what I'm arguing is that, you know, uh, in Portland they have the right to to do as they see fit up to a certain extent. Um, but if these actions, if we see that these actions are having a big negative cost on uh, society as a whole, then maybe uh, it's justified to step in and take um, some steps to make sure that we're not, you know, that we're leaving everyone better off. And, and you know, you want to be cautious in how that's used. Um, but I, I think it's appropriate to have some check on uh, on on the actions of uh, of people in places like Portland, simply because their their decisions don't um, take into account the uh, the many other people who would like to uh, to live in Portland but are unable to, uh, or the many other people who would benefit from greater growth in, in Portland and uh, and the, the, you know, the higher productivity level that would result. Um, and, and so that's I guess that's sort of the argument that I'm making. Yeah, and I. I'm going to shift directions now. Before I do, I just want to mention to my current and former students, and we're talking about supply responding. We're talking, of course, about movements along the supply curve, and we technically should have called it quantity supply. But when you talked about supply responding, uh, I assume that's what people understood we meant. So for you technical supply and demand people out there, that's just a, that's just an aside. Um, two things that are missing from your book that I wanted to challenge you on. Uh, one is the politicians' incentives. One of the things that happens when city councils and zoning boards and other groups have more what I would call ad hoc power rather than rule of law decisions. So there's a certain – if you want to describe it positively, you call it flexibility. If you want to call it – describe it in a negative way, you call it arbitrary. So a city council can turn down a project – for a variety of reasons or accept it for a variety of reasons. And the more power they have, the easier it is, of course, for self-interested uh, homeowners to protect their property values and protect their uh, gains from outsiders coming in. But, of course, the more politicians get to enjoy the attention they get from influencers, be it developers or homeowners, who now can petition them for um, – for those rare times when they say yes. And it seems to me that the entrepreneurial side of this for politicians is extremely destructive. That's interesting. So, I mean, are you, are you mainly concerned about the, the, uh, the potential for corruption? Is that the... Well, I, I wouldn't call it... It doesn't have to be corruption. What you've pointed out in the book, which is so powerful, is an example of what We've talked about many times on this program, which is the bootlegger and Baptist idea that a lot of regulation is justified uh, is justified on altruistic grounds, but often serves self-interested purposes, particularly in how it's structured. So when homeowners say, instead of saying we want to keep people out because it keeps our home values high uh, and we like making money on our house, right. they instead say uh, it's for historic preservation, it's for green spaces, we smart, we call it smart growth. It's really selfishness uh, masquerading as public interest sometimes, 
Not always. Well, we're, we agree on that. Um, but when you have – when it's arbitrary, when you don't have clean, transparent, uh, regular regulations that decide when a development is allowed versus not allowed and when it's then going to come up every time for a vote, what you've done is you've created a tremendous amount of rent-seeking potential there for politicians to be selling essentially the occasional yes. Right. Uh, I live in Mon- I live in Montgomery County, <laughs> we, outside of DC, a different side of the of the um, of the river from you, mm-hmm. and um, there is no uh, Super Walmart and no Wegman's grocery store in my county. Right. Uh, there's a special provision that if you have a really large store, you have to get a special permit. And so Wegmans and, and Super Wal- and Walmart can they have a choice? They can say, "Well, should we press for a permit that we might not get because there's no certainty about what how we qualify?" Uh, the existing grocery stores, uh, Giant and others, make large donations to the City Council of Montgomery County uh, and are good friends with them because they keep out their competitors. And it's a nasty. I don't, that's not corrupt. It's not. Nobody's going to jail for it, but it's it's extremely destructive, and it makes it more expensive to live here. That's that's absolutely true. And I, I mean, I think that um, I think it, it it would be helpful to move to. I mean, to to a more rule based system for for adopting these things. And I sort of. I mean, I, I think I advocate a couple of things along those lines. One of them is a zoning budget. Um, yeah, talk about that and some other ideas in the book that that you think might improve things. Sure. Um, I, you know, I think one issue that we see is that uh, there's a lot of these sort of um, uh, pressures to constrain development or, or get special political uh, consideration at, at a hyper-local level. And, uh, and, and the problem is that it's not, we don't consider these decisions at the level of the metropolitan area as a whole. Uh, and I think it's, you know, one thing that would be useful is to find ways to sort of tie politicians' hands um, and uh, one suggestion that's been uh, been made by uh, a couple of scholars, uh, Roderick Hills and David Schleicher, is uh, for a zoning budget. And essentially, the uh, council decides, or whatever the ruling body is, decides um, that it's going to accept a certain amount of uh, of new development each year, um, and that sort of ties their hands, it constrains their ability to. Um, to uh, meet this or that demand, or uh, another way of looking at it is that it gives politicians an opportunity to uh, to blame their decision to say yes or no on something else. They can say, "Look, we had no choice in the matter because we had to follow the zoning budget," which I think is useful as a way to try to get politicians to behave better, is to give them someone to blame. Um, yeah, and part of the problem, of course, is that the insiders, the people already there, vote, and the people who'd like to live there can't vote against these these policies because they're not on the rolls yet. Uh, but that suggests that these kind of policies will never pass. Uh, no city council would impose those kind of restraints on, on themselves, and no, and the voters won't, won't, won't like it either. Right, right. I mean, it sort of counts on a level of enlightenment there that, that, that yeah. we may not get. And, and you would expect that whatever the zoning budget level is, it'll be set at a level that's lower than the optimum. Yeah. Um, that said, I think that even a, setting a zoning budget lower than the optimum may produce um, – better effects than if you just have sort of arbitrary um, decisions being made. Uh, but I think, I, you know, I sort of make a, a point of this um, in the book, that there, and I think, I think actually Tyler Cowan has made this point as well, is that there seems to be um, an extent to which people can will are willing to accept greater levels of openness and density um, 
if they feel like there's less state there to be abused. There seems to be some sort of trade-off there. And if, when you look at a place like, like Texas, uh, which is very open to immigration relative to uh, some of its neighbors, which is very open to development in its big cities, Houston and Dallas just have enormous housing stock growth, enormous in-migration and population growth. And that seems that sort of corresponds to a smaller state, a less, uh, and, and you know, there's fewer public services there, and, and this is a sore spot to, occasionally for, for Texas politicians running for higher office. That there's there's yes, not as much um, state there to benefit the newcomers, and I, I think that's maybe not coincidental that um, that people are more willing to accept outsiders when um, there's less in the way of state spoils uh, to be shared. And so maybe that's one of the lessons here, which is that um, that there's some sort of trade-off, and maybe we need to think harder about whether policies that we think are helpful in general, which you know could be uh, things to make healthcare more open or, or cheap uh, public education. Uh, and I'm not suggesting we should get rid of them, but maybe that when we have a high level of public education, that's going to increase um, the desire to exclude outsiders um, out of fear that you know those public goods are going to be exploited by those outsiders. Uh, and I, I, that's one of the questions I don't really have a good answer to, but it seems potentially to, to emerge from what I've argued here. And um, I, I don't know. Why you, maybe you can tell me what you think about that. Well, I, you're touching on something that I wanted to close with, and, and I think it's, uh, it's a deep and complicated issue, so I don't, I don't, I'm not going to give you a pat answer. But uh, one of the things that struck me, I don't think you talk about in the book, is that if we think about coastal cities versus Sunbelt, there is a very different political outlook uh, on average between those those two types of locations. So the coastal cities, uh, Boston, New York, the Bay Area, um, Washington, D.C., Portland, Seattle, these are places where the average worldview of the people who live there tends to be more interventionist, uh, a little more interested in using the state in various ways to either improve people's lives or just improve their own. Um, that That's the tension we've been talking about in the last few minutes. In the Sun Belt, uh, and this would be North Carolina, Charlotte, Raleigh, Arizona, Phoenix, Tucson, Texas, Houston, and Dallas, San Antonio, these are places that have experienced enormous growth in population, as you point out, partly because they're attractive, but partly because they're cheaper than the places that are even more attractive, a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. And those are places where people tend to be more skeptical about the value of intervention by the government, where the state, they generally want a smaller state. And um, that's not, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and I think the the those worldviews result in different zoning policies, obviously, um, and are going to make it more and more likely that this competition, which is what it is between these urban areas, continues in the direction it's going, uh, where there's places that have much more open opportunities for development and places that have less. The places that have less are going to stay about the size they're at, and the places that are more are going to inevitably attract more people. And that's going to have been another pl- an increasingly important political dynamic that feeds, feeds back on on the outcome. So it's um it's a really interesting issue. Yeah, I mean I, I I agree with you and I think it's I mean it's interesting when you look at uh when you have these coastal cities that uh that exclude um a lot of people through housing costs and that creates pressure for other interventions. I mean it creates pressure to 
find ways to ameliorate um, the situation for for lower income people through affordable housing measures and uh, to to do things about the school systems that apply to lower uh, uh, income households there and rather than sort of allowing the the market to do more of the work of equalizing opportunity, you end up uh, feeling like, ah, we need to do something about the fact that a lot of people are being left behind, uh, when in fact they're being left behind because so many of them can't afford to take advantage of the opportunities there. Um, and, you know, and you see that, I, I think, in, in Europe as well. You have Scandinavian countries that have rich economies, really high-quality public services, but they're really only able to maintain those things because they uh, are not welcoming, for the most part, to to outsiders, and and so is that, you know, is that a trade-off that's really a good one to make? Uh, and maybe it'd be better if we were allowing more people to take advantage of these opportunities, even if that meant that we couldn't do quite as much in terms of um, uh, supporting uh, supporting those newcomers through state intervention. You know, that's that's going to be, I, I think, something that continues to be debated uh, as we watch this play out over the next ten years, where people are moving and, and what they're doing when they get there. My guest today has been Ryan Avent. Ryan, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Rez. It's been great to be here. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.